It's now been three years since the passing of my Rebbe, the founding Rosh Hashiva of Yeshiva Haritzion, Rebbe Huda Amital, a person who deeply, deeply shaped, obviously, my life and the life of so many tens of thousands of Talmidim who studied in the Rosh Hashiva in Israel, and by extension, the lives of countless others, because he was one of the people who first articulated the idea of Hezder, and the yeshiva that he built became a template or a paradigm for the budding world of Hezder yeshivas. And obviously, Rav Amital had a national impact beyond his particular role as a Rosh Yeshiva in a Hezder yeshiva. And as the years pass, in some ways it becomes easier to, um, at a more dispassionate level, consider how he changed our lives and how he impacted our lives. Obviously it becomes more difficult because the memories sadly enough, start to fade. Ramital becomes less a part of the public discourse. Obviously, he's still part of the country and, the, in particular, the, the religious Dati movement of this country. There's a school in Har Choma named after Ramital, the Amital School. There are projects, there are um, organizations named after Ramital. But I wanted to try to articulate not really as way of a hespate, but way of an appreciation. It's a, three years later. A way of appreciating and hopefully internalizing for those who knew him to be able to organize and by way of organization better articulate and assimilate. And for those who didn't know him, just to get a little bit of a glance into a very unique individual, everyone that knew this person felt that their lives were rendered completely different by having encountered him. I would say that I would try to classify Rav Amital's impact. And again, this is extremely, extremely uncomfortable for me because I'm just one Talmud and he meant so many different things to so many different people. And once you start to classify, it seems like it's authoritative and that it's universal and it really isn't. But these are just my own impressions, as we would say, my own takeaways, how I felt that I was inspired and I was educated by Rav Amital. When I used to hear of Amital speak about humanism and human experiences and trying to connect our human experience to religion, I really didn't understand what he meant. It sounded very cliched. Everyone wants to try to connect their religion to human experience. We're all human beings. But as I grew older and as there were examples which he cited, I understood that for Amital to become more religious was not to shave your human instincts, your human tendencies, nor your human weaknesses. Not even to accept them as deterrence of your ultimate religious development as an angel, but to realize that part of being an Ovid Hashem is affirming all the traits Hashem gave you as a human being. And even when those traits seem like they're deficiencies, they're probably not deficiencies. They're probably traits as a human being that are instrumental in particular areas of Avodah Hashem. And I want to give a few examples. For example, Rav Amital would always tell us how important it is to give the following answer to a question. When someone asks you a question and you don't know the answer, it's important to state, to articulate, I don't know. 
He said that Rav Shach actually taught him this. He and Rav Shach taught together in a school in Rehovot in their respective earlier careers. And Rav Shach evidently told Rav Amital the most important answer you could ever give a Talmud is to tell him you don't know something. It teaches humility, but it also conveys humanity, that every human being is limited in their knowledge. And a Rebbe and a Gadolador, in the case of Rav Amital, obviously in the case of Rav Shach, has to present themselves as a human being. And human beings are limited and don't know everything. There was a uh, very famous, and uh, it's so famous to me, it was very impactful. I was once listening to Rav Amital deliver a shear on the laws of Esrog and what types of colors constitute kosher Esrogs and what type of yellows would disqualify the Esrog. So I remember asking him towards the end of the shear whether the Debate about yellow esrogim can be compared to the debate about yellow tsaras, because in the case of tsaras, yellowish colors are also crucial, are also fundamental in determining whether the tsaras is tummy or tar. And in front of the entire base matter, she said, I don't know these things. You expect me to know the laws of tsaras? Go ask, and he pointed out a member of the staff of the yeshiva then, go ask that person. He's an expert on taharas. And it was just so refreshing for a Rosh Hashiva to be able to stand in front of an entire room and not just acknowledge his humanity, but present it in very clear fashion. That that was very inspiring to us because we're all humans. And we don't have to feel that we have to exchange or surrender. We don't have to feel intimidated that as humans we can't achieve the heights he achieves. Here's a person who is ready to confess that he doesn't know something and still he's a Gadol Ador and still he's taught us and inspired us. That was a very meaningful part of our education. Whenever we'd ask Rav Amital about the beginning of the Torah, about Bereshus and Noah, questions of creation, questions of evolution, questions of the date of the earth, how the world was created, he would always tell us, I'm a simple Jew. I only start reading the Torah from Parshas Lech Lecha. Hashem told Avram to leave his own homeland and travel to Eretz Yisrael. That's where I start reading the Torah. I don't know the difference between, we'd always say, big bang, small bang. Now, part of Ramital's lesson was about the relative role of philosophy and metaphysics, and he wasn't someone that placed great emphasis on those studies, um, and he was highlighting and prioritizing the importance of Amunah Pshuta, of simple faith. But part of it was also confessing that there were things about Torah that probably would be important, and many people find significant and central to their relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. He just doesn't know, and it doesn't bother him that he doesn't know, and it doesn't bother him to convey to you that he doesn't know, and if you were truly interested in these areas, he'd point out to you people, books, individuals that really did excel in these areas that you could consult with. So these are just two or three examples of Rav Amital being very open about his limitations as a human being, and the limited knowledge, and not just hiding, or not acknowledging, certainly not hiding it, but almost um, um, highlighting it and underscoring it so that we'd be inspired within the limits of our human experience to be able to reach great levels and great things. There's a second part to the affirmation of humanity, that Human instincts are noble. Human instincts are pure. And they're not to be denied or demonized. 
even even if they sometimes seem to be incongruous with ritual, religion, divine will. Rav Amitav would always tell us about Avram Avinu and the Medrash. And on the one hand, he had to fulfill the divine mandate and sacrifice his son, but on the other hand, he'd be crying tears of a father. And even though at a practical level, those tears contradicted Hashem's command, that doesn't mean those tears were illegitimate. They were normal tears of a compassionate father. And that's why the Medrash takes pains to remind us that Avram was actually crying and tearing. At the practical level, of course, he had to submit to the divine will. But at an experiential level, it was crucial that Avraham stood at Haramoria as a human being, not as a monster, even though he was submitting those human instincts to the divine will. Rav Amital told us that there's nothing wrong with reading Parshas Vayetze that Yaakov kissed Rachel. And that doesn't mean that we should or can kiss single women or any non-married people who aren't our wives today, but it's a natural feeling of love, natural feeling for someone that he looks to become his wife. And we'll have to deal with, well, how could Yaakov have performed that act? And in today's context, the act would certainly be prohibited. But you shouldn't deny, not just deny the honest reading of the text, which was a different issue, but shouldn't deny that Yaakov felt romantic feelings for Rachel, and those romantic feelings are noble or pure. He told us a lot about the Gemara that Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai would assure his Talmudim that they feared HaKadosh Baruch Hu, at least as much as they feared men, they'd be successful in Yerushalayim. Even though, in an idealized sense, you should obviously fear HaKadosh Baruch Hu more than you fear men. But reality is that human beings are weak, human beings are are prone to social pressure, fear of HaKadosh Baruch Hu is very abstract, fear of man is very palpable and very social. And he felt that Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai was training them towards a less superior form of Yerash Shemayim, one that would be equivalent to Yerash B'nei Adam, but a Yerash Shemayim that would be real and human and could be achieved, wasn't highfalutin and abstract and artificial. And Rav Amitav would always tell us about how people that like Kavod, so the Kavod runs away from them. And he said, I like Kavod, and the Kavod yet finds me. And he would almost joke with us, because the people who say they don't like Kavod probably are lying to themselves and to others, and they really do like Kavod. The fact that they're saying they don't like Kavod is probably just the guys, whereas by telling us that he liked Kavod, and joking with us, he was trying to punch holes in the whole hypocrisy and, and Tell us that he really could care less, and he really could care less about Kavod. And, but he was articulating to us in part how futile it was for someone to deny the reality that every human being has an ego, and every human being likes public uh, approval and public interest and public awards. And why not just come out with it and say it, instead of hiding behind cliches, instead of hiding behind false piety, instead of saying, I don't like Kavod, when it's clear that everyone enjoys Kavod. Just admit that you like Kavod, but you shouldn't be um, oafish about it, you shouldn't be manipulative about it, you shouldn't be, but just accepting who you are as a human being is the first step towards authentic Avodah Hashem. So this was a second area in which I think Rav Amital conveyed to us just the importance of being a human being. One is by acknowledging the limits of knowledge that you don't know something. Number two is validating human instincts, even when they don't seem to be divinely legislated. The third aspect was 
that it's all right to be flawed. It's all right to be imperfect. A very famous story that Rav Amital told the Talmudim when they asked him, what will make your yeshiva different? When that first class was thinking about coming to his new yeshiva, so everyone is familiar with the well-known story of the baby crying, but there's a lesser-known story about a chassid who steals and gets thrown into jail, and the Rebbe comes and takes him out of jail, and he steals again, and the Rebbe comes in again three, four times past, and the same chassid is kleptomaniac, and he keeps getting caught and thrown into jail, and the Rebbe keeps bailing him out and consoling him and rebuilding him, and then at some point the Rebbe dies, and they appoint the son as his successor, and the chassid steals again and gets thrown into jail. And they call for the Rebbe, and the Rebbe's dead, and they call for the Rebbe's successor, his son, who's much more radical and much more pious, and he berates the chassid and starts screaming at him and excoriating him, how dare you steal, you're an insult to my father, rotten jail, then maybe I'll take you out. And the chassid starts crying, he says, look, I'm not a tzaddik, I'm a rasha, I'm a rasha. I need a Rebbe for a Rishayim. He says, you, you're a Rebbe for Tzaddikim. It's easy to be a Rebbe for Tzaddikim. Your father, he says, he was a Rebbe for Rishayim, and I, I need a Rebbe for Rishayim. And if Amital told that first group of Talmidim, there are plenty of yeshivas in the world for Tzaddikim. I want to start a yeshiva for Rishayim. And what that meant exactly, what does it mean to have a yeshiva for Rishayim? But it was acknowledging that not every person is a Tzaddik or a Russia. Not every person can be easily divided into these rather facile categories, who is a tzaddik, who is a rasha. Instead, Rav Amitav was telling us, every person has a little bit of a tzaddik in him, a little bit of a rasha in him, and these classifications don't make sense, and instead of posturing, and instead of preening ourselves as rishayim or tzaddikim, just accept the fact that we're complex people, and just teach and respect each and every person. I remember Rav Amitav describing on Yom Kippur, how daunting the concept was that Karav Hashem l'chol Karav l'chol Asher Yikru V'emes, that Hashem is close to people who call out to Him honestly. And He would cry to us as He'd be delivering His speeches, Yom Kippur. Who amongst us can really consider themselves Yikru V'emes? Who amongst us is really someone that cries to Hashem with honesty? We're all dishonest. We're all complex and confused. None of us is really Yikru V'emes. And if Hashem requires honest tefillah, then we're all hopeless. We're all beyond that capacity. And then he would say, but Karav Hashem Lanish even Hashem ideally warns people who call to him honestly, he'll also answer those who are brokenhearted. And after the Holocaust and living in Israel with all the struggles, we all qualify as those who are brokenhearted. And therefore Hashem will accept our tefillahs, not as Yikru Uvamas, but as Nishbrei Leif. So these are just two or three of the examples that I felt, having grown up with Rav Amital from a young Talmud to someone who had this chus to learn many years in yeshiva, then to teach in the yeshiva, to be in his orbit for so many years. I felt that that cliche of religion and humanism was something that I understood a lot better through the examples that I saw and that others saw, I'm sure many who are listening to this year have their own examples and their own um, their own little stories. The second theme that I picked up from Rav Amital, and I'll try to be a bit briefer to keep this discussion a bit brief, is to be able to sense the experience of Geula that the state of Israel constituted for him and for us, and to be able to read that through the sources, to be able to look back at, at Pasuk and Tanakh and to look back at a Rambam 
and to sense phenomena occurring in our state and in our world and see it as latent without becoming too messianic, without becoming too manipulative of the psukim, without becoming a prognosticator or a predictor of the end of days. It's a very delicate balance. Some people eschew the entire process. It's too frightening. It's too messianic and apocalyptic. And some people are too engaged. And every historical event has a reference point, a direct reference point in Tanakh. And Rav Amital would see the trends and patterns of Gula through very general psukim. He would always quote to us on Hanukkah, the Rambam, that says that part of what we celebrate on Hanukkah is the restoration of Jewish sovereignty. And he'd remark about how flawed the Jewish sovereignty was in the post-Hanukkah era between the Hanukkah miracle and the destruction of the Mikdash at the hands of the Romans. And yet we celebrate Jewish sovereignty regardless of its caliber and independence of its type. And he would apply that to our current fledgling and flawed sovereignty, and yet it's a reason for celebration, even though the state of Israel has yet to provide us with the sovereignty, geopolitically and religiously, we all seek. He talked about Zechariah, very famous phrases in Zechariah, Ko Amar Hashem Tzvakot, one day Hashem says, Od Yeshru Zekenim Uzkenot Berchavot Yushalayim, old people would walk through the streets of Yushalayim with their walking canes, and children would frolic, you talk about how his eyes had witnessed children being lined up against stony walls in Europe. Now we're witnessing these prophecies of Zechariah being fulfilled. And he told us how he used to walk every day to the yeshiva of Hebron, which was located in Givat Mordechai after escaping the Holocaust and watch the children playing in the courtyard and stand there mesmerized, crying for hours, realizing that he was living through the fulfillment, the actualization of Zechariah's prophecies. He would quote to us, Malachim Bey's Perak Yudalit, in which Yeravam ben Yoash, a very evil northern king, was an agent for territorial expansion in HaKadosh Baruch Hu's messianic or redemptive agenda. And even though Yeravam ben Yoash was a terrible, idolatrous king, Sometimes the fate of the Jewish people demands redemption, and Hashem dispatches even unlikely agents, and he would apply that to our current context in which our Zionist partners are not necessarily built from the same fabric religiously that we would expect, and yet Hashem chose them because Jewish history demanded it. And we felt validated. We felt validated that these redemptive experiences, which we all sensed in our gut, in our psyche, were divinely authored, were part of the Yad Hashem, that they had reference points in sources, and these reference points were real solid ones, not stretches of the imagination. They were solid, but it also felt rooted. And Ramital was not describing exactly how the Messianic era would unfold, but just general patterns about redemption. I know that coming to the yeshiva as a youngster from a Haredi background. I'd been exposed to the world of Torah. I'd been exposed to the world of chesed, of midos, of davening. I really hadn't been exposed to this, to live Jewish history as a redemptive process, and more importantly, to sense that that echo of redemption was grounded in sources. I know myself, I was inspired by this throughout my life, and 
There's a series of about 12 audio shirim that I put out on why Yutara called redemptive sketches, and I try to trace 11 or 12 different aspects of our gula and trace them from their respective sources. And inevitably, a lot of that is based on ideas that I heard from Rav Amital and that I was inspired by Rav Amital. So that would be, in my opinion, the second second area that I felt deeply, deeply changed, that religion was presented in human terms and that redemption was always anchored in historical texts in a responsible manner rather than a messianic uh, pitch. The third thing that I sense, and I really only sense this much, much later, much, much later, is I remember as a young person traveling on school trips, camp trips, to a sports event, to a museum, to a public event, and being lessened by my teachers about the importance and the gravitas of Kiddush Hashem and Chil Hashem, and feeling a great onus, a great responsibility to present HaKadosh Baruch Hu in a positive light, not a negative light, not to uh, not to elicit the scorn and ridicule of our would-be enemies or would-be haters of religion. But for Ramital, Kiddush Hashem and Chil Hashem was not just pockets of drama that evolved from unique personal experiences, going to a public setting, traveling on a plane. But the overall arc of Jewish history impacts HaKadosh Baruch Hu's presence in this world. And when the Jewish faith rises, HaKadosh Baruch Hu's presence is felt more powerfully. And that's the Kiddush Hashem. And when the Jewish faith declines, there's a regression of HaKadosh Baruch Hu's presence. And a regression of HaKadosh Baruch Hu's presence is a Chil Hashem. There's a redefinition of Kiddush Hashem and Chil Hashem along two fronts. Number one, Kiddush meant greater awareness of Hashem. Chil meant lesser awareness. Number two, the awareness of HaKadosh Baruch Hu was a product of Jewish experience and Jewish behavior. And he said this and he quoted this so often, it's almost it's almost redundant to attach it to this Pasuk or to that Pasuk. So often. And this is in some ways how he viewed the Holocaust. He never tried to wrap his mind or any human intellect around the Holocaust, but he certainly felt that the Holocaust was a tremendous Chil Hashem. The the methodical attempt to eliminate Jews from the world was an attack on HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and the state of HaKadosh Baruch Hu was at its lowest during the Holocaust darkness, and that a Chil Hashem of that magnitude required a Kiddush Hashem, part of which was served by the rebuilding of Jewish peoplehood in the state of Israel. He quoted the Pasuk in Tehillim Kuf Zayin, which we recite, the parak we recite on Yom Matzmot and Yom Yerushalayim, Yom Ruguleh Hashem, those who are redeemed by Hashem. And he felt that the phrase Geule Hashem didn't mean that we are redeemed by HaKadosh Baruch Hu's intervention, but we are redeemed because of Hashem. That sometimes the Jewish people don't deserve to be redeemed, but they're redeemed because they're part of a larger saga. And he liberally, liberally applied this theme to 1948, in which the terms of our redemption may not have been classic because our deservedness may not have been legitimate, but historical warrant, historical demand, historical exigency was so powerful and so compelling 
that HaKadosh Baruch Hu had to, so to speak, redeem us. And was if he didn't have a choice, because the Echil Hashem was so great. And we were all Geulei Hashem. We were redeemed not just by Hashem, but for a larger purpose of HaKadosh Baruch Hu's name in our world. Lo lanu Hashem, lo lanu ki'im l'shimcha. Ten kavod. Um, one of his mis- most misunderstood decisions in life was based on this. In 1996, he decided to join the Perez government as a minister. People were outraged that he was selling out to the left-wing government. And the truth is, it was totally, totally the opposite. It was totally, totally for pure motives. I remember him giving a speech at the base matters and outlining to us that he was joining the Paris government for two reasons, and two reasons only. Number one, because he felt that the final boundaries would soon be drawn, and he wanted to save as much of the Jewish settlement as he could from within. You can argue whether that was politically correct, but his motives were absolutely to support the settlement movement as best as he could. But more importantly, he felt that the assassination of Rabin by a Torah-trained Hesder student was such a desecration of a Kaddish Baruch Hu's name that it required some act- action in response and that a Rosh Hashiva being invited to join a secular government as a minister was such a Kiddush Hashem that he felt that he had to take that decision. He wasn't interested in politics. He wanted to stay in Yeshiva. But he had to make that great decision in order to be Shem Shemayim. Remember a couple of years before he passed, there was a terrible... Uh, Police action, the police action wasn't terrible. Police uncovered a terrible, uh, what should I say, cartel of, of people in New Jersey, in the United States, who were selling human organs, amongst other illegal activity and money laundering, and much of it was centered around rabbis who were serving as the liaisons and the money conduits, and there were major, major arrests, and it happened on Arab Shabbos, and he remembered seeing the tabloids from the United States with rabbis in beards being taken away in handcuffs. I remember Friday night he was speaking in yeshiva and he wasn't issuing his position about the arrests. All he was doing was crying at the Chil Hashem. He said he never thought he'd have to see rabbis being taken away in handcuffs and long beards as he did during the Holocaust. He wasn't discussing what his position was, who was right, who was wrong, but the Chil Hashem just was so corrosive to him. And that's the third the third element that I picked up from him is to be able to see your lives and paint your lives as part of that larger drama. Number four, and I remember of Breuer, Zechron Levracha, very well-known Tanakh Rebbe in Israel. Many non-Israelis may not have heard of him, but he's very well-known and well-received his works on the Torah. I remember him once pointing this out. And in Rav Amitam, we sense a very rare combination. His faith, his emunah, was rock solid, was unshakable, powerful. The immuna that only facing death countless times in the Holocaust and surviving could yield. There was no question about his immuna and his relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And on the other hand, he was a very creative thinker. He was really out of the box, rethinking ideas, rethinking not outside of the halachic boundaries, Chas a very courageous thinker. He didn't back down from ideas. He really faced ideas in a, in a very, very upward, frontal, unabashed fashion. And you very rarely find this combination. Very often, people of great faith 
are very conservative in the thought process because their faith circumscribes their field of mental inquiry. And oftentimes you find that people who are very creative, out-of-the-box thinkers are not very deep, deeply rooted in faith. Their thought process is the anchor of their religious experience. And Rav Amitav was so solid in this combination. And having heard Rabbi Breuer, Dr. Breuer, describe this, it very deeply resonated in me. And when I feel my moments of faith, I get strength from Rav Amitav, as I do from Rav Lichtenstein and others, my parents, my other Rebbeim. And when I try to think in a sincere, constructive fashion, in creative and independent and fresh manner, I feel as if it comes from the same source and I feel comfortable and confident that it won't lead me out of my field of faith, my blanket of security and my commitment with HaKadosh Baruch Hu, but it will refresh it and invigorate it. And I assume you have to meet people like that in your life, people of deep creative thought coupled with unshakable anchored faith to really have the confidence that those two are reconcilable rather than uh, incongruous or or confrontational. He talked a lot with us about religion being based on commitment. The foundation of religion has to be based on commitment. And once it's commitment, even irrational commitment, faith, then you can start to elucidate. And again, a lot of these words are mine, but they were certainly inspired by the ideas which he constantly, constantly conveyed to us. Remember him telling us that there were many different donations and charities dedicated to the Beis HaMikdash, to the Mishkan and the Midbar. But the Machtis HaShekel, the standard obligatory half-shekel that everyone delivered and donated, that was used for the Adanim, for the base of the Krashim, of the wooden beams of the Mishkan. Because the base, the base of the Mishkan has to be mandatory. It can't be something which people deliver voluntarily. All the other materials, the gold, the yarns, the dyes, they were all delivered voluntarily. But the machzis hashekel was delivered as an obligation. And as an obligation, it forms the foundation of the Mishkan, because the foundation is built on obligation, and the foundation of religion is built on feeling obligated. One of the last works that he authored towards the end of his life is a little pamphlet called something about Ben Mechuyavut Lemechubarut. It's a lot of religious experience in Israel today amongst the current generation. What do I connect to? What speaks to me? What resonates within me? Trying to find that inner voice of religion, which is a very sincere uh, inquiry. But he was pleading the case that as part of that discourse and conversation, it's not just about how you connect to religion, but how you commit to religion. Um, he told us the story, a very famous Gemara in Kiddushin, about a guy named Dama ben Nesina, who one year had a parad, uh, one year had special gems and, and diamonds in his estate, and the Jews wanted to purchase it for a high sum, but he couldn't sell it to them because his father was sleeping on the key to the safe. The next year, as a reward, Hashem gave him a paraduma, and the same rabbis came back to purchase his paraduma. 
And he could have fetched an even higher sum because a paraduma was worth much more than these gemstones. But he told the rabbis, don't give me the money that the paraduma is worth, just give me the money that I forfeited last year for the gemstones because of my kibbutz of Aim. I didn't want to wake my father. And Rav Amitel saw this as a parable that a Gentile, in this case the quintessential Gentile, the moral Gentile, Dhamma Benesina, was willing to profit off of Kibbutz Avaim in year one and foregoing the money of the gemstones for Kibbutz Avaim, but wasn't willing to profit off of Paraduma in year two. Because Paraduma was irrational. Kibbutz Avaim makes sense. Paraduma doesn't. It's the quintessential paradigmatic chok. So he was saying, I'm honest. I can't conceive of religion based on irrational ideas. I can conceive of it only through rational means. So I deserve money for rational mitzvahs. That makes sense to me. But for paraduma, I'm not willing to take money and be, be immoral, take money for an idea I just can't agree with or reconcile. And this is another opportunity for an Amital to teach us that faith or religion begins with faith, a rational commitment. And then it's developed, it's amplified, it's elaborated. So this to me was the fourth theme that I felt inspired by, that this combination of creative thought, creative thinking, revolutionary ideas, courageous, unbending, unwavering, and yet indefatigable The final thing that I wanted just to mention, I'm sure the minute I finish recording this, my mind will be flooded by a lot of other ideas, is that not all experiences in life are cognitive or cerebral. This may sound very odd, because the yeshiva that he founded, the Gush Yeshiva, is known by so many people as being a beacon or or a center of brisker-style learning, of analytics and gemara, very intellectual thought, but it wasn't only that. And Rav Amital would convey to us that experience, even if it's non-cognitive, was crucial. He would teach us songs, and those songs carry great memories for us. They took us back to places. They put us into moods in ways that ration and cerebral activity couldn't or can't. It's a very famous story. Obviously, one I didn't attend happened in 1974. The boys had been emptied, sent quickly to the front during the Yom Kippur War in eight or nine. I don't know, as I'm recording this year, my mind is, uh, is escaping me. Eight or nine boys from the yeshiva were killed. It's a very harrowing and traumatic experience for a young yeshiva. And what people don't know is that the Yom Kippur War lasted well into the winter, not the actual fighting, but the boys were at the front. And the first time the boys were allowed to return to yeshiva in 1974 was Purim time. And here they were in a surreal situation. They're supposed to be happy, but they couldn't because the yeshiva was in trauma. And this was the first time they were coming back to yeshiva and they missed the yeshiva. And Rav Amital sat the entire group down and started singing a little song with them. A European song, he would always teach us these little village shtetl ditties. A European song that began with a, a Purim melody, Shoshana's Yaakov, or something of the equivalent, and transitioned from one ditty to another, from one tune to another melodically. Um, one to another, morphing. Finally, the, the end of the tune was Kol Nidre, pure m- melodic transition. There's a song they would sing in the shtetls in Europe on Purim, to accentuate the connection between Purim and Yom Kippurim. And for the boys that were in the room then, it was cathartic, it was breathtaking. 
because they were brought back to the Yom Kippur that they had left and was such a point of trauma in their memories. And now they're being brought back and it all was making sense, so to speak, or being, or at least lending some degree of closure. So he would teach us songs. He would always teach us these songs, not not the latest hits from Mordechai ben David, but songs that had mileage on them. Songs that took us back to simpler times, to pre-war shtetls, to Rebbe's tishes, to he tell us about the Mashiach song. He would um, tell us about being a kid in Hungary and being told by his Rebbe that if he whistled or sang the song deeply enough, the Mashiach would come, and they called it the Mashiach song, and they would go out into the woods in Hungary and whistle the song and sing it and look up at the trees and fully expect Mashiach to come. And I know that whenever I felt lonely or whenever I felt that I wanted to be somewhere else, trapped, I would whistle this song to myself and imagine myself as a youngster in Hungary in the middle of a forest singing Mashiach's song and looking up to the skies and waiting for Mashiach to come. So he took us back to Hungary as a child. And that trip for us was a way of breaking, or for me at least, was a way of breaking my own heart and cold reality if I felt like I needed to be imaginatively, so to speak, somewhere else. Um... He taught us the importance of songs without words. Sometimes we get too connected to the words, and then we cognitize the song, so to speak. The song becomes a moment for us to think about the deeper meanings of the word, and that's also a very deep experience. I know of Lichtenstein, my other Rebbe, was, was always and is always describing, giving it to Vartara. I sometimes remark to people that, I don't know if in our yeshiva we have the most labor de kakafos and simchastara, but we certainly have the most lamdasha. Because every time we finish a song, Rivaran would give a 5, 10 minute, sometimes 20, 30 minute shot on what the meaning of the words are, what David HaMelech meant, but this word. And for Vamital, in many ways, he would tell us that songs don't need words. Sometimes we'd be singing a song in the yeshiva and it would have no words and the boys may not have been singing it so assertively and enthusiastically. He would tell us the following story about a Moser, a person who would squeal to the authorities about Jews and Meister. And the Jews would always, when he would pass, would say Zachar, would shout the word Zachar with the incantation in the trap to let him know that he's a Malik and he would get his. So he complained to his sponsor who issued an edict that you can't say the word Zachar within a 10-foot radius. So then when he would pass, the Jews would go Zachayf Gadol, Zachayf Gadol, which is the trap of the word Zachar, and he was able to connect the dots and realize that they were threatening him. So he went to his sponsor again, who then banned anyone from saying the word Zakef Gadol within a hundred foot radius, whatever the whatever the ban was. So every time he would pass, the Jews would go, ay, 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 And he knew that the ay, ay, ay was the same tune as Zakef Gadol, which was the trap of Zachar. So they were hinting to him that he was a mullik. So he went to his sponsor, and the sponsor said, look, I... I can ban saying the word Zachar, and I can prohibit saying the word Zakef Gadol. I can't tell people not to say ay, ay, ay. It's too foolish. So Ramital would tell us, you see, there's great strength even in songs without words. Jews know how to convey their ideas even without words. Now start singing, and we would all sing as deeply and as loudly as we could. Those of you who haven't seen it, I'm sure you could just go to YouTube and just type in Vitaher Libenu in Hebrew, his most famous song, in which he would gather us, sometimes for hours, 
And the magnetism of that song wasn't because the tune was so catchy. It was because the plea and the davening was so heartfelt. And stand in the middle and scream with us, V'tahir libeinu liavdecha b'emes, please cleanse our hearts so that we can worship you in honesty and authenticity. And we just chant, uh, I know this is going to sound strange, literally for hours, V'tahir libeinu, and we will, each word will be articulated with such deep hope and deep thoughts, V'tahir libeinu liavdecha b'emes, it was a slow chant that we chant together. And those are really the most soulful songs, the songs with the most neshama, not the songs that are catchy, that are rhythmic, that move quickly, but the songs that really permeate your neshama because they're slow and heartfelt. But it wasn't just songs that took us to different places and to different moods. It's also stories. You know, these legendary stories, these meaningful stories, and they also... Just tell one story and how it impacted my life in such a deep fashion. But I'm sure there were literally hundreds of stories, and each person was impacted by them very differently. It was 1987 or 1988, and the first intifada broke out. And there was a lot of depression in the yeshiva because the Israeli Talmudim, who had already, so to speak, finished their army service, the army service part of their hezder, and had anticipated being able to learn in yeshiva, to conclude their Hesder five-year experience, were being called up as reservists. A Hesder boy, even when he's not serving in the army, is still officially in the army. He's not even a reservist. He's officially in the army. So he'll get called up first because the army needed more manpower to patrol, to, uh, to, to to quell the protests. This was the first intifada. It was very different intifada than the second one. There's a lot of depression. It was especially acute because it was Erev Pesach, around Purim time, Erev Pesach, so there was a specter of having to spend Pesach in army bases as opposed to being at home. And these were boys who had already served their year and a half in the army. So Rami Tal gathered everyone, it was a tish, around Purim time, it may have been in a Parsha Zachar tish, it may have been a different stage, and he said, let me tell you a story about my Shabbos in a concentration camp. He said, we had no Shabbos, no meals, we worked straight through, Obviously, no davening. The Germans took particular delight in disrupting our Shabbos interests. So I used to have one white shirt that I kept on the side, and I would fold that shirt every Friday as I went to the work detail. And when Shkia came, I would try to, to, to uh, walk away to the side, hide for a few moments. I would put on that white shirt, be Makabal Shabbos, and that's it, and then I'd get back to work. And that was my entire Shabbos. No Kiddush, no meals, no Chalant, no davening, no learning. My entire Shabbos was a white shirt. And he said, you guys are spoiled. He was laughing at us, obviously. Your Shabbos is scattered across many different fronts. The food, the singing, the davening, the learning, the sleeping. He says, I felt all of Shabbos to that white shirt in a very intense fashion. And they told the boys who were going to the army, You've had Pesach in the past with long, protracted Sedarim and Divrei Torah and Shiurim of Matzahs and Marah. He says, this year you're going to have a very quick Seder. It's going to be 10, 15 minutes in your army base before you have to go out to your patrol. But Hashem will be with you and your entire Seder will be felt intensely, potently, through those 10, 15 minutes. And you just felt the magic in the air. Magic. And he was, again, giving people the confidence to have a 15-minute Seder 
in a very intense religious fashion by literally taking us back to his Shabbos in a concentration camp. A couple of years ago, my wife was very ill. It was a very serious uh, illness. Baruch Hashem, she's recovered, and she was in the hospital for Shabbos. Now, hospitals in Israel are a little different than hospitals outside of Israel because it really goes into Shabbos mode. It gets very almost uh, eerie. Come an hour or two before Shabbos, you can really feel the entire hospital start to wind down. Um, oddly enough, oddly enough, it's almost, if you're in a hospital outside of Israel where the hospital is going to function at full capacity by non-Jews, so, you know, feel Shabbos is deeply. You'll have your meals, you'll find your davening. You can really feel the hospital winding down, everyone going to Shabbos mode. Obviously, hospitals have to operate on Shabbos in Eretz Israel. So here I was, I'd been home with the kids, getting them ready for Shabbos, and I was going to come spend Shabbos in the hospital with my wife. And it was a very, very difficult week, obviously, emotionally. We had been through a lot of ups and downs, a lot of fear and terror. It was a life-threatening illness. Baruch Hashem, at this point of it, it was clear that she was going to heal. And I carried a little Shabbos food, a couple pieces of gefilte fish, maybe some delicatessen, two small rolls, three small rolls, whatever it was. The food was in a basket, not much more. A basket of food and maybe one or two articles of clothing. And keep in mind that in Eretz Yisrael, as many of you know, the hospital rooms aren't really rooms, they're just little sections um, divided by curtains. Basically, very little, if no privacy, you're living on top of each other. It's the reality of life in Eretz Yisrael. So it wasn't a Shabbos that uh, I was particularly uh, optimistic about. I wouldn't have any room, I wouldn't have much food. Obviously, I'd be together with my wife and be there to support each other. I made my way up to the um, hospital ward where my wife was, and there she was. She had cleaned up the little corner. You know, she had been a long week, a very intense week, so it had gotten a little messy, so she cleaned it up, and she was holding one flower in her hand. And she said to me, and I'll never forget that, she said, this is my white shirt. This is our white shirt, because she had heard the story before. And right away we each burst out into tears, but we knew that our Shabbos would be great, because... Again, not to compare the Holocaust to being in a hospital in Eretz Yisrael, healing quietly, but sometimes when you have less, you have more. And the strength to live that and to experience that and to believe in that was provided by a story, not by a pshat, not by a speech, not by a sicha. Obviously, this is more of a lengthy presentation than I had intended. I'm sure by listening to this, you sense how deeply impacted I was by this person. I just wanted to try to itemize five areas, just for the sake of clarity, not for the sake of comprehension. The emphasis on humanity and being a human being, the way that emphasis was conveyed, being able to live through redemptive experiences through the perspective of sources in the Torah and Tanakh, articulating Kiddush Hashem and Chil Hashem, not just in specific terms, but through the trajectory of Jewish history, the combination of faith, rock-solid commitment, and creative, courageous thought, finally, the ability that not many people have. There's a tremendous tamachachim of Amitel. Don't mistake any, don't let anyone tell you otherwise. I learned from him. But it wasn't just cerebral and cognitive. He was able to create spirit through song, through story, 
just through presence. Yehi zichro, baruch.